This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Binge Boys is a podcast you're listening to right now. Hello, I'm Hal Rudnick, and across from me on the Zoom, Lon Harris. Hey, Lon. I feel like it's been a long time since we uh, since we did one of these. We we had said two. We used to do every week, and then I was like, mm-hmm. I'm tired of talking to you so much. No, I'm kidding. I, of course, I didn't say it like that. <laughs> you I love just the got sound busy of your with other voice. stuff. I like yes. I, I love talking. Uh, uh, so I was like, let's 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 slow down. Let's slow our roll. Let's do more like once every two weeks. So mm-hmm. I can, you know, like just a time crunch thing. Uh, but I feel like now we've dragged it out to more like once a month, and we can we we we'll we'll get a little more diligent again, maybe in the new year. Yes, I would like to step our game up just a little bit with the frequency. But with you know with the holidays, I I had a, a little bit of traveling to do. Right, exactly. I feel like there were, it was a natural delay, but uh, we we shouldn't let a month go by without speaking next time. True, but yeah, last week I couldn't put a microphone in my face because I had that had all that turkey in my face, Lon. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, listen, the Thanksgiving holiday it's a it's a beloved American tradition. It's a you, this you is true. This is true. I like I noticed that uh, when I was a kid. I feel like yeah. nobody was doing anything but turkey. It was like, that was crazy. The idea that you would have non-turkey on Thanksgiving was was crazy. If you were an American- Oh, that's a non-starter. You, if you were an American, you celebrated. Like, obviously, if you were like an, you know, an immigrant family and you didn't care or whatever, the, the, who gives a shit? But I mean, if you were, do, if you were doing the Thanksgiving dinner, the, the turkey was an essential part of it. Whereas now, I feel like Gen Z, they, they don't give a shit, man. Like, you see on Instagram, people are making, they're making hams, they're making uh, pork shoulder, they're making mm. dim sum type platters, they're making, like, what, you know, whatever. Like, anything goes at Thanksgiving in 2022. You know, I'm, I'm down for people making their own traditions. You don't have to bow to the patriarchy's tradition of turkey but uh yeah I'm, I'm but me personally yeah i'm gonna eat turkey on thanksgiving i'm a turkey guy if i don't That's have turkey thing. on thanksgiving if i don't have turkey on thanksgiving and for that matter stuffing a little bit of pumpkin pie gravy uh maybe just a couple other things then uh, yeah i might be a grouchy boy i might be a grouchy thanksgiving a grumpy boy it would be like doing all of Christmas, everything Christmas, decorating the house, milk and cookies for Santa, presents. But instead of a tree, you just like stacked a bunch of tires in your living room. Like you're you're going ninety five percent of the way. Just get it. Just get a tree. Just do. Just do the rest of it. You, you know that that makes sense. I feel like that's a, a very very uh, apt uh, comparison. There, to me, Alon. your dinner of delicious. Suckling glazed ham is the equivalent of a stack of tires in the living room. That's what I'm saying. I'm just like I will say, pork. It's not an anti-pork thing. I love pork as a meat. Ham, not my like like when you get like a slice of ham as dinner. Not my favorite. Not I. I, oh, I don't, me I, neither. Uh, on like a I sandwich, fuck with pulled yes. pork. 
I like a sausage. Oh, yeah. Right, exactly. Like all, all kinds of, like a pork, I, I mentioned pork shoulder. Mwah, delicious. I love it. A pork roast, a pork loin, into all of it. A pork chop, even. Yeah, I'm down with the other white meat. But, uh, but like the, when you get like, it's like when you, there's like a carving station and they carve you off like a, a piece of that ham. You know, like in yeah. old cartoons, like the big, like the big ham and then they're slicing. I don't. I don't know. I'm not into I it. I get it. It's got, and sometimes it has, uh, what do they put, put pineapples on it sometimes? Yeah, I don't know. It's not, I don't, I don't get, I don't get yeah, it. Yeah, I'm not I a really fan of Canadian it. bacon either. Canadian bacon for that oh, matter. I, I like, I like back bacon. I, I think that's pretty good. I think. I, I oh like yeah. I'm not, I'm not a back bacon boy. I'm a, I'm a crispy strips. I, I, I don't mind the Canadian bacon, but yeah, it's, it's just that, I don't know. It's that weird. It's like, I feel like it's like, yeah, it's like when you go to like a buffet or like a nice buffet where they have those like carving stations and you've got a guy in like the white chef's outfit who's like working you a little piece of that ham. It's never as good as it seems like it's going to be. It's always kind of rubbery, and I'm not a big fan. So I think we've uh, revealed here, Lon, he says, F you if you're trying to start a new Thanksgiving tradition. Just intolerant. Yeah, your Thanksgiving with your ham. Come on, man. Just get it. Just get a turkey. I also, I mean, people in general, I think, are too hard on turkey as a meat. It's good if you cook it, right? Turkey can be tender and delicious, a little gravy, on there. Oh, gotta go gravy. People are always like, oh, it's so dry, it's so gross. Like, hey, you're 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 not preparing it correctly. Lon, I could talk about uh, a blessed Thanksgiving feast with you for yeah. ad nauseum, but uh, we've got a lot to get it's to. It's December fourth, so it's timely. It's super timely this material. Absolutely. Uh, people are still sitting there with their pants unbuckled, Phil yeah. and high off tryptophan. They're like, yeah, give me your best 10 minutes on cranberry sauce, guys. Let's go. Let's hear it. Alas, we have news to get to. The news with Lon. Oh, bummer. Not, not as much because this is the period where basically everyone in Los Angeles is already like done working for the year. So there really isn't going to be a lot more streaming news until the end of the year. But we'll, we'll do our best. Uh, according to Netflix's own internal figures, season one of Wednesday. Did you watch Wednesday? We're not reviewing it this week. But did you, did you check it out? I haven't finished it. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm a couple episodes in, enjoying it. I, I watched it. I thought it was, I thought it was only kind of, okay, it looks great. Jenna Ortega is great. She's obviously got the, the, the vibe of what the character is supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, I feel like the jokes are, are kind of late. It's very like tropey CW, like exactly what you'd expect a supernatural teen mystery drama series to be. That I don't mind. So if it was like, you know, doing the that formula, but it was funnier. I don't think I would mind it so much. I just, I just think the comedy's lame. Yeah, I, I think you're right. In as much as it disappears into the whole crowd of these, you're right. These coming of age uh, YA teen dramas, yeah, and then I mean, also, so uh, exactly, and, and then also take. the Harry, the Harry Potter vibes, and then like you can't help but like there are all these. Uh, just school for bizarre mutant type children. Like Tim Burton directed this, and he he even did one of those movies. He did the the Home for Mrs. Peculiar Children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's like so, everybody's kind of repeating themselves at this point. Yeah, I don't need to see. I don't need that vibe. Like I wouldn't have minded something that was just slightly closer to the old show. But I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll take this over. Rob Zombie's Monsters. That's for damn I never sure. watched that. I really, I kind of wish I had gotten. Oh, I watched about twenty never... minutes of it and shut it off. It's no yeah, bueno. I, yeah, people were people were down it, but I like I like a lot of Rob Zombie's other films. Anyway. 
Anyway, but yeah. the, the mainstream American or the world public disagrees with us how they love it. Wednesday they has the it. most watched first week of any English language TV season in Netflix history. It beat Damn. the previous record holder, Stranger Things season four. Now, this is according to Netflix. We're getting this information from the the from the the streamer's mouth. So, you know, the, who who knows what what they're really seeing? But this is what they're saying. They're saying yeah, I don't see why Wednesday they now, lie. Number one English language TV season of all time. It was viewed for 341.23 million hours in its first week on Netflix. The only show from any language internationally that has ever had a bigger peak week on Netflix. Squid Game. You guessed it. It's still Squid Game. All time number one juggernaut. And Squid Game over 500 million hours watched during its peak global week. So nobody's even getting close. Like that's what's so amazing. All of these other shows keep fighting it out for this second place award. Nobody's getting within striking distance of Squid Game at all. That, that We've yet to see a international juggernaut on that level. Perfect storm. You're absolutely right. The uh, n- Nothing is going to capture the globe the way Squid Game is in the first did in the foreseeable it's future. It's really remarkable that they've had so many they've had so many other attempts and nothing else is even coming close. Uh, yeah, may, maybe a maybe a red notice will come along and uh, set well, the world. Red ablaze. notice too, I think is going to take it. Well, they to be fair, that we don't do they don't compare movies to TV shows in that way. Like we right. do compare we we keep movies and TV shows separate because this million hours viewed Metric obviously wouldn't work because right. movies are only two hours. So even if five oh, yeah. times the amount of people watch Squid Game as watch Wednesday, it wouldn't beat Wednesday because there's so many more episodes to watch. So that's why we, really there's sort of two silos. There's the most popular movies list and then there's mm-hmm. the most popular TV. Uh, anyway, Makes we don't know. Sense. Wednesday yet to be, uh, we don't know if it's going to come back yet for a season two, but I would say pretty likely considering how much people seem to like it. You know what? Uh, Netflix is going to try to uh, go back to that well. Oh, you betcha. Yeah, they need more. They need they definitely need more franchisable stuff. And Adams Family, Wednesday Adams, Jenna Ortega having a pop culture moment right now. No reason you wouldn't want to keep that going and keep keep maybe a family. And yeah, maybe you team up that Wednesday with that Enola Holmes and they go uh, solve some creepy mysteries together. You'd have to do a time travel thing. Yeah, you'd have to finagle the you'd have to finagle the timelines and everything. But uh, man, that's lightning in a bottle right there. Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, right? Like those those two. So what about Sabrina and Wednesday? getting together. Do it. Do it. You know what? Throw Wednesday in there with uh, Alyssa Milano and the Charmed Girls, Rose McGowan. There's new Charmed Girls. Get the new Charmed Girls. You know what? You get the new Charmed Girls. You get the old Charmed Girls. (laughs) You do like Spider-Man No Way Home. The old old Charmed Girls are the Charmed Crones now, Hal. It's been a long time. (laughs) (laughs) The Charmed Groans. <laughs> the Charmed Girls. I don't know if you could still call any of them. The, the Holly Marie Combs, delightful actress. I don't know if she's still in um, The Women of Charmed. The Women of Charmed. There you go. Uh, Haunting or, of Hill House those and Charmed Midnight Broads. Ma- yeah, you know, those Charmed ladies. They are, oh, they are, uh, they're magic. Lightning in a bottle. All right. Haunting of Hill House and Midnight Mass duo Mike Flanagan and Trevor Macy, they're departing Netflix for a new deal at Amazon Studios. They've been at Netflix since 2019, taking off, mm-hmm. done with Netflix. Their most recent Netflix show, The Midnight Club, canceled after just one season. 
They've got one more project coming up. That's the Edgar Allan Poe series, Fall of the House of Usher, which is oh, like- Oh yeah, Frank Langella railed against Yeah, uh, it's the, well, it's the one he got fired. He will no longer be in Fall of the House of Usher. He got fired yes. for inappropriately touching, uh, touching a lady, but- uh, yeah, he's like, still- yeah, here, here's my here's Frank Langella commenting on that. Well, you know, in my day, when it was a love scene, it would be like jazz, and you'd find <laughs> these moments with your with your co-star. These you would you would ca- you would capture ooh, just a spontaneous combustion. But now, oh, it's robotic. You can't let your hands explore, Hollywood. If a great actor does it, it isn't illegal. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think he's... Oh, fuck he, that guy. Well, the weird thing about the whole, that is, like, everything that he's saying is always like, mm. well, this is a... It's a way of... It's a way of doing our jobs. And when you're working and when your job is acting and when you're performing and when you're doing a love scene, it requires this spontaneity. And this is the only way to do the work and make the work good. And it's like, he's forgetting, like... But your your coworker is the one who complained. Like it, like if if yeah. if you and the person you were working with both agreed this was the best way to work, there wouldn't have been a problem. It was that that you the person you were working with didn't like it. So it doesn't that whole argument doesn't like matter. Like it, of course it if yeah. it's the only way to do the job, then your coworker would have agreed, right? No. Exactly. No. It's it's freaking ridiculous. Uh, he just he just wanted ex- the guy wanted an excuse to get his jollies off while he's doing a scene. Why don't honestly? It's called acting. I'll, I'll, you rehearse I'll take him at his and you word. pretend. I'll take him at his word that he's like the only way to do a love scene. I gotta really like love up on this woman, and that's the only way I can believably act. Fair enough. But then you say that to the uh, like, hey. We're going to do this love scene. I feel like the only way to get real emotion would be if we really loved up on one another. And if she's like, no, well, there, there's your answer. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, if she's like, OK, that sounds good. Then done. Great. Do the scene. Like, that's that's really yeah. all it's about. I don't know. I think you got to just uh, go, go with uh, the flow, which is to keep people safe now. Yeah, they're like, I'd like a scoop of chocolate. And you're like, well, the only way I know how to scoop ice cream is to give you rum raisin. Like, well, you're going to get fired. You're not doing a good job. No, that store is not long for this world. Yeah. Or what What if you were going into some kind of stage combat and uh, you decided to be like, oh, I'm going to surprise them with like a blow to the head when that's yeah. not rehearsed. It's, yeah, no, it's, it, you know, if you really extrapolate it, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. You know, and I do, uh, but I, that, I that say, was the Steven Seagal. That was the Steven Seagal school of, <laughs> oh, I'm just randomly hurt people. Yeah. I think people are like, people are very, ju- like acting's hard. Like I don't, I can't do it. I think everybody like writing or something. I think everybody assumes acting is something they could do. And so there's always stories yeah. about what actors did to prepare and people are like, oh, that's so stupid. And I'm like, no, it's really hard. Like whatever you have to do to get yourself into that mental space. Like I get it. That's a challenging it's art, you know? That's yeah, and, and, and people, I think people malign it because it's, oh, quote-unquote, artsy-fartsy or something. But there, but there you, are you know definitely what? people who, there are definitely people who use that as an excuse to, like, be Jared Leto and obnoxious. And it's like, no, it's not an excuse to be yeah. obnoxious. You just, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, so anyway, apparently Flanagan and Macy were talking to other, a bunch of other like Amazon won a bidding war for them. So I guess mm-hmm. for whatever reason, they decided they were done at Netflix or they and Netflix decided to part ways. And so they were actively looking for a new home. I don't I don't know the particulars. We None of us do. They, they weren't reported. But it seemed like they weren't going to stay at Netflix. If they weren't at 
Amazon, they would have ended up at Peacock or Paramount or Apple or somewhere else. Their, their series seem to be such a signature shows for Netflix. Yeah, and, and the other thing that I think is interesting is this comes right on the heels of the success of that Guillermo del Toro horror anthology, which kind of was making Netflix like a little bit of a must-see destination for horror films Epis- and horror. Epis- yeah, episodic horror. and yeah. yeah, like Cabinet of Curiosities and all of these Flanagan shows makes a pretty compelling case for if you like a lot of horror content, you kind of have to have Netflix. And now they're losing yeah. one of their tentpole horror franchises. Maybe they are. Maybe their number one tentpole horror franchise mm-hmm. in the Haunting series. So I don't. I'm, I'm, it is an interesting development for sure. Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll probably eventually get the very story curious. Very, it, very yeah, very curious because I um, like that. That seemed like a very a great relationship. Well, obviously, but, Midnight uh, Mass was a big is- talked about show, and Hill House was a big prestige show yeah. for Netflix. And and you know, Flanagan's a, a Hollywood filmmaker. He did Doctor Sleep. Oculus, Mm -hmm. Ouija, Origin of Evil, uh, big movies. Uh, Harrison Ford, speaking of big movies, Harrison Ford is going to start acting in not one, but two upcoming TV shows. The guy's never done TV before. But he's a movie star, Lon. We're we're really seeing the last big, like there are only a few big movie stars at this point who are so big they haven't done TV. Like Meryl Streep at this point has done TV. Like next it, thing it, you're it, gonna it, tell me, Stallone, Stallone's never gonna yeah, do TV. Yeah, like to do, we're, at this point, it's like DiCaprio hasn't really done a TV show yet. Right. Uh, I guess he's like the last big old Tom Cruise. They haven't done TV, but like Amy Adams, Meryl uh, Streep. Shall- has Chalamet done TV? Uh, no. Is Chalamet? I guess. I guess. I Chalamet's a big star now. I don't know. He'll be. He'll be Wonka. That's pretty big. Anyway, among, among the biggest. Anyway, uh, so Ford. Obviously, Indiana Jones next year, but he's his Yellowstone prequel series, 1923, in which he co-stars with Helen Mirren. That hits Paramount Plus in just a few weeks ah. on December 18th. And then, mm-hmm. uh, right on the heels of that, his Apple TV Plus comedy series, Shrinking, arrives on January 27th. That one comes from Bill Lawrence, the Scrubs and Ted Lasso creator, and Jason Segel. Uh, Jason Segel, they, they sort of co-created it together, and they co-wrote the pilot. Uh Siegel plays a therapist whose wife dies, and this leads him to change his philosophy of how he does his job and start telling his clients exactly what he thinks about them and their problems. And so Harrison oh. Ford is a supporting supporting actor in this show. Uh, he, he, he starts being honest, just like uh, Jim Carrey, liar, liar, and the Well, with the twist that it's a therapist. Ensues. So, right. Yes. So he'll be like, it'll be people, they'll be like, shut up, you whiner, you know, like that kind of, I don't know. Wasn't there, and there was the, a movie and like the this. shit will there? hit the fan. What, I feel like there was like an 80s movie or something where this was the premise that I know, About I know what Schmidt. I'm thinking of. No, there's no. a, there's a job, there's a movie called, a Dudley Moore movie called Crazy People. And he's an okay. ad executive who starts telling the truth in his commercials, and then uh-huh. he gets committed. So that's what I was I was thinking of. It's it's not that he's not a therapist. He's a he's a, he writes he's like a Don Draper type. But then the really sure. the movie was an excuse to do a whole bunch of like what if commercials were honest, you know? Honest, yeah, sure, sure. I don't now I'm thinking did honest did that inspire honest trailers? <laughs> it's like the same premise. I mean, what if the trailers? 
said everything we were really thinking. What if they were really honest? But uh, Harrison Ford, a very, a very hardworking octogenarian. Good for yeah. him. Old, as old long as he stays still... out of, as long as he stays uh, out of the air, as long yeah, as he no does not point. take, uh, as long as he's not in the cockpit. We're all safer if they come up with reasons to keep Harrison Ford firmly planted on the ground. Yes. What do you What do you think of that uh, that Indiana Jones trailer? Did you watch that? Oh yeah, I I did. You know what? You excited it for the Dial fun. of got, Destiny? Yeah, you know I like that he's punching Nazis in this day and age. I thought it looked good. It did not. It did not bring back the aftertaste of Crystal Skull. Yeah. Let me ask you this: Do you think is it? Do you think it's time travel? Is that? Do you think the Dial of Destiny can take you back in time? Because one, that sounds like a thing a Dial of Destiny might do, right? Like a dial. But also, oh, see, that would explain why it kind of looks like we're going back to visit moments from previous films or like he's back in the Nazi castle from Last Crusade. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, is he going to have to do a Back to the Future 2? I feel like from the from the trailer, I got kind of that vibe. Yeah, um, I, I, th- I think you're completely wrong. I, I think the Ooh. Dial of Destiny is like Click or what was that uh, movie with John Ritter? Uh, from the 80s where he stay goes tuned. into the television. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned or or stay tuned. The Dial of Destiny is on a television and he changes the channel and he goes to all these cool TV shows and Harrison Ford in the movie <laughs> is going to be in some of So it's your... we're jumping through 60s TV shows. He's 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 going to be in like all sorts of there is going to be time travel. What if Indy met the My Two Dads? <laughs> oh, he could be the third dad in My Two my Dads. My three sons. My three you know, sons. Now, My Two Dads was nine. I, I met my three sons. My no, three. he's gonna he's gonna travel everywhere. So he can be in My Three Sons. He can be in My Two Dads. He can be in Eight Is Enough. He can be Rizzoli, Isles, and Indy. Yeah, you're <laughs> gonna see him in the most beloved shows. Wow. In Indiana Jones, Dial of Destiny. Coming to a channel. Suits and whips coming to USA yes. Network. Characters Suits welcome. and whips. And uh, in this in the show, um, Indiana Jones is in all these TV shows. But if you want to watch it, it's only in theaters. Yeah, why not? Anyway, my I, I think I honestly figured out what is gonna the movie's gonna be. No, that sounds uh, how, your, how, your 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 how your had a jokey funny riff. Good. I think, oh, I yeah, think I as a, and, a, and as the wrap-up... Don't forget up, Dumb. The, Don't forget Dumb. A dumb riff, too. It's the final film, the wrapping up the whole franchise. No, I, I like... I That actually that actually sounds pretty apt. I like, uh, I, I, I like what you're It feels like... I, I don't know. I got, that, I got that general vibe, the trailer. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. In a big town hall with employees following his return to the company, Bob Iger says that uh, rumors Disney and Apple plan to merge... They're, they're just rumors. He, he's got, he says he has no plans to do any major acquisitions during his, he's only given himself 24 months to turn things Ooh. around for Disney after stepping back in, kicking Bob Chapek to the curb, taking back yes. over the company himself. So he's only got two years to make some, some big moves and try to put Disney back on the right track before he's going to name another successor. I, I don't, I don't understand. What, what, what do you mean? What, what can you, for you know, the, the layman lawn. Could you break down why the other guy got ousted? What were the big things where they say we need to get back on the right track? The background to all of this, and actually the background to the next story I'm going to talk about too, the background yes. to everything we need to know in the digital and streaming marketplace right now is ad, the ad market has crashed, crashed and burned. Right. During the pandemic, the ad market took a big hit and everybody thought, 
this is because of the pandemic. And once there's no more pandemic and once all these supply chain issues are dealt with, the ad market will come roaring right back and we'll all be fine. But that has not happened. In fact, things things got worse post-pandemic than they ever were during the pandemic. Now, some of it is eventually going to get better. Like, I I mean, you know, all these things are cyclical. A lot of it is like stuff that is totally out of everybody's control. Like car companies are taking out a lot less ads in 2022 because there have been a lot of supply chain issues. So there are fewer cars for sale. They have fewer inventory. So they're taking out less ads. Cars are a huge chunk of ads. Like if you think about when you watch ad breaks, how often is it Ford, Chevy, Lexus, Infiniti, Tesla, whatever? Yeah. Completely, completely. Especially sports and like a lot of these really vital categories, they really depend on ads. So the ad market has cratered. Not all of it is due to any one thing. It's, it's sort of all over the, a lot of recession fears, a lot of inflation stuff, general macroeconomic stuff that's out of the, the hands of a lot of these companies. Right. What that has done is that has put a terrible, terrible money crunch across every internet, technology, media, entertainment company you could think of that relies on advertising. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing this through tech. Snap is suffering, you know, uh, like Facebook, obviously. Twitter, we've heard Elon Musk complaining about it. Google, all those companies that rely on ad dollars are suffering. But it's Mm -hmm. also happening to all of these cable companies, to all of these media brands that also rely on advertising. So so like our next story is about AMC. They thought, they thought, we could set up all of these subscription services, keep selling right. ads on cable, and then even though everybody's leaving cable and cutting the cord, well, we'll pick up a lot of those people. They'll oh, sign up we'll for our Oh, we'll have our cake services. and eat it too. By the way, I really uh, I appreciate that uh, thorough breakdown of well, uh, that's the just ad, the, that's part of the that's ad part revenue. one. Uh, but let me ask you a question in response to that, though. It, it seemed like Disney Plus was doing well as far as subscribers. It seems like they're just have that's only part one. So when you're talking about okay. Disney. They're not as reliant. That's part of the story. They are reliant on ads in some ways, Disney Channel. Uh, but Disney stock is also cratering, and it's it's due to all, all kinds of stuff. It, in addition right. to the the general economic problems, it's 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 a lot of the theme parks are 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 not doing as well. We've seen a lot of. Disney struggling at the box office, especially in areas that used to be surefire success. Strange World is the most recent example, that big animated holiday tentpole, massively underperforming. At this point, did you know the menu, that refined satire, has outgrown Strange World in theaters? So far. That's insane. I felt like the ad campaign for Strange World was a, an abomination right. because well, it gave they, you, if, and gave you no damn idea well, what this new IP was. So now you're starting to get into why everybody has been so down on Disney in gotcha. the past year. Okay, a lot. It's 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 a lot of those individual kinds of stories where it's not necessarily one decision Bob Chapek made that people are like, well, he fucked that up. It's more like Mm -hmm. at a lot of different points, there are a lot of these things that you could pick up like, well, that didn't work quite as well as it was supposed to. The Disney Star Cruiser Star Wars Hotel. Remember when that launched and all the discussion was about why is it so expensive? Why does it look so weird? And why are there no, you know, like it it looks so claustrophobic here. Exactly. And, And I don't even necessarily think there's the idea that Iger's strategy would have been so different. It's that Iger would have sold this stuff better. He's comforting. So here's what I was yeah. going to say. 
the big thing, if you are a Disney board member, the reason that they were like, let's get rid of this Chapek guy and bring Iger back, probably has yeah. less to do with any of the practicalities and more to do with this will goose the stock. People like Bob Iger. Gotcha. They yeah. feel confident Steady hand in him. On the wheel. Bringing him back is going to goose the stock. And it worked. Like, bringing, bringing him back is going to make investors feel more confident and people will come back and start buying Disney stock again. And that's what it did. And so that's really gotcha. big picture what it's about. I, I do think cool. Iger's probably got better ideas and is a better CEO than Bob Chapek. But Chapek was basically running Iger's basic strategy anyway was just not doing as good a job of executing it and remember right. too like he had that he had that bizarre interview or speech where he said like adults don't watch animated films and he said disparaging oh i don't remember things. that but yeah that's yeah. <laughs> yeah disney can't be saying that shit. Uh, yeah like he went right he like a couple different times he sort of spoke out about disney adults in a kind of disparaging way and it's like oh yeah no you can't then's the your hand bread and butter that bob way. you gotta make yep. them happy yeah so yeah. anyway, that's the, uh, that's cool. the big yeah, th that's a gr uh, appreciate the breakdown, Lon. Good stuff. Uh, so anyway, we, we will see what happens and, and what kind of big moves Iger has. But apparently people were like, oh, he's going to come in and immediately he's going to like, you know, buy Warner Brothers or merge with Comcast and merge with NBC, NBC Universal or like take over, you know, join Apple or and it doesn't look like it's it's going to be any of those things. Moving on. We did talk about AMC a little bit. They are really struggling because they lost their yeah. their 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 subscription, their niche subscription services are growing, but not nearly fast enough to make up for the money that they're losing from people leaving cable and cable not being able to sell as many ads. Like they've they've got popular shows, but if they can't sell the ads against them and they can't get you to pay for them on AMC Plus. What good is it? So they had some successes. Better Call Saul, Walking Dead just wrapped up its final season. Interview with the Vampire was a critical hit and, and got a lot of fans. But it's they're having trouble turning that into active revenue streams. So they've announced large-scale layoffs are coming to AMC Networks. Mm -hmm. The CEO, Christina Spade, resigned after just three months at the company this week. And they had renewed the sci-fi drama series Moonhaven for a second season. That is, they, they've retroactively gone back and recanceled it. So AMC, you know, don't get it twisted. They've had m so many massive hits, but right now it seems like they don't have that uh, that Breaking Bad or that Walking Dead. Well, it, it's I think it's less it's less that they don't have content people want to watch, and it's more that they yeah. don't. And when I say they don't have the Walking Dead, they have Walking Dead, but the, it, Walking they Dead have they don't have a reliable they don't have a reliable like distribution system that brings in regular revenue. Like they don't have yeah. they don't have a Paramount Plus that they could just send all their mm -hmm. stuff to and try to sell subscriptions to that. They have AMC Plus, Shutter, BET Plus, or no, not BET, uh, Urban Movie Channel. Uh, they've got a lot of all black. They've got a lot of these like smaller services, Acorn TV, and they're all available mm -hmm. through Amazon Prime channels or smart TVs or Roku. So you can subscribe, but but those are those are going to be slower growing than something like HBO Max or Disney Plus. There's just less marketing muscle. There's less attention behind them. I was going to say right. AMC is one of these companies that is primed to get acquired by someone like a Disney if they were looking to acquire. Like, Netflix should probably just buy AMC. Yeah, like, I won't be shocked if any deal happens at this point. Like, you know... Uh, right, but... You know, this is, Disney this, this acquires is, Sony. 
sure, in this day and age, like they those those numbers, yeah. Sony's the fascinating one because they, you know, they make PlayStations and TVs and stuff. So that's mm-hmm. why they, nobody's going to buy Sony. But AMC doesn't have that. They're just AMC. Yep. So, yeah, yep. at some point, I wouldn't be shocked if, like, it, it seems obvious that, well, yeah, AMC's a great library of content. Imagine if, like, NBC Universal merged with AMC. Now you could watch all of the NBC shows and Mad Men on the same service, you know? I mean, a dream come true. A, tr- a true exactly. Uh, exactly. utopia, that would be. A peak TV dream come true. Last news story. I saved the best for last. Uh, so you're what? We're going to talk about White Lotus season two in today's yes, review. Yes, sir. So I know you're watching it. So on the season premiere, a memorable scene on the season premiere, Aubrey Plaza's character Harper is uh, freshening up uh, in, the, in the restroom and Cameron, her husband's friend, comes yes. in to quickly change into his bathing suit uh, in the mm-hmm. other room. But it, she's right there next to the mirror and can clearly see him drop trowel and put on his bathing suit. And we see actor oh, yes. Theo James displays a, a a very large, it turns out prosthetic uh, member. You can see you can see his, his wang. Yes, a prosthetic ding dong, a prosthetic. It's 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 a fake uh, it's a fake Wang. Uh, and yes. The the scene you know this there, there, there's a bunch going on in the scene. It's uh, it's obviously like does he know that his friend's wife can see him change? Is he doing this as like a provocative like I want there's her to a vo- see my- the scene as a voyeuristic tone and it um and much of the exhib ex- Exhibitionist, yes, absolutely. She'd That's be the a, absolutely that perspective. She would be the voyeur, um, uh, and uh, an exhibitionist tone, and uh, the the uh, complications of uh, married life and fidelity. We're exploring all of that, right. and in the scene, this uh, this big old rubber dong, like it's very large, which immediately makes you think it was kind of a blink and you miss it moment. What? Uh, I don't of, really think it is. It, it lingers for it lingers for a second. I feel like I feel like a lot of a lot of men. I don't think I'm alone. And if you see a, a huge dong unexpectedly in a movie or a TV show, immediately you start you, you do the is that is that a prosthetic was that a was that a prosthetic one that looked very very big that looked very I don't know that I don't it's know like, if that's all. Is my James. guy that really looked, uh, right? You, you can't you really can't help show it. her like that. You can't help it. But I I did I think it the thing that tipped off that it was a prosthetic right away is that it does just as you said. It's got a little bit of a rubberiness to it that I don't think a real appendage would would have. It it's it's wildly swinging. And you're a student of the game. You're a, you're a student of the game. Hell, I've studied a lot of dongs. And what I'm here to say is I don't know the swing. It's got a lot of swing. And there's not I, and there's not a And thing I don't wrong I don't know that. if the natural the natural one has as much swing. Anyway, sure. we got confirmation this week because Theo James was on the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And of course Jimmy Fallon naturally raised the subject of his naked white lotus penis. And Theo James mm-hmm. said, Not yet. yes, it was a prosthetic, Theo James confirmed. He also said the scene was much more explicit as written that he turned around and it was a full frontal scene. And on the day when they were filming it, they were like, you know what? This is weird and it throws the whole dynamic off. He should be more like he doesn't know if she can see him or not, more subtle. Yeah. It, and the scene played well. It's an. It's got a, right. a, a slightly ambiguous. Like you, you could easily uh, discern or like make a decision one way or the other. But I think it does have some ambiguity to yeah, it. Yeah, so plays I, with the I ambiguity like a little of whether he really is aware of it. And here's the last thing that Theo James said. I I thought this was fascinating. He says 
he had originally asked when they, you know, he and Mike White discussed the scene and they decided immediately they were going to use a fake penis. And then mm-hmm. he says they both specifically told the art department, don't make it a huge fake penis because the point of the scene is not look at how well endowed Cameron is. The point of the scene is supposed to be exactly what we've just been talking about. The the ambiguity of did he mean for her to see him? Did he want her to see him? Is he hitting on her? Or is this just an innocent thing that she noticed? Uh, but as it plays, I do think the scene ends up playing like, wow, Cameron has a huge penis. Because yeah, it's so, so is that, so inadvertently that becomes the storyline that my my guy right. hangs dong like my nine inch pal Pete Davidson over here. Right, yeah. And uh, really it's, it's I don't, like- I gotta we're, tell we're, you, I gotta tell you what that I got I I've never seen Pete I've never seen Pete Davidson with without his pants on. I, I can't speak I don't speak from experience here. Maybe he's got an enormous beard. Well, Jay Farrow, Jay Farrow came out and uh, But in my uh, experience, said, when Hollywood dudes have huge penises, you always hear yes. about it way late like you always hear about it like once they're old men. Like Liam Neeson and Willem Dafoe, we've since heard about these stories about like Willem Dafoe has like a foot long penis. But like, it wasn't like a braggy thing when he was young and in his heyday. That's weird. The fact that Pete Davidson has injected this into the conversation now at the Mm -hmm. height of his sexual prowess when he's dating every Hollywood woman. It's a little fish. It's a little fishy to me. Yeah, you do it classy like Milton Berle late in the game. Milton Berle's the classic example. It wasn't 30-year-old Milton Berle and we were all like, that guy's got a huge dick. It was like old man Milton Berle and we were like, you know what they used to say? Yeah, old old tripod Berle. Old tripod Milton Berle. So I don't know. It makes me immediately suspect when people are like, Pete Davidson right now is 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 slinging a 10 inch dick around Hollywood. I don't know. I don't well, know. Well, I only hear I only yeah, I only heard about it because uh well, I think uh, Ariana Grande might have alluded to it in a song, but also Jay Farrow came out in an interview recently and is like, "Oh yeah, we both have giant dongs." Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm yeah, not, I, color it, me color me unconvinced, folks. I don't know if I buy it. Oh, you know, I I, I believe it. I be, I believe uh I believe what the news the tabloid news sites tell me. But also, I uh I just want to shout out two other great, uh, some of the great prosthetic dongs of all time. Uh, Tommy Lee, most recently, and uh, Pam and Tommy, uh, Sebastian Stan. That would be and Sebastian then, Stan. Uh, Tommy Lee's all real. Yeah. That's entirely authentic. Yeah, yeah. Sebastian, Sebastian Stan, Stan was, just, was wearing a prosthetic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, as Tommy Lee. Uh, and uh, uh, Mark Wahlberg's uh, Dirk Diggler, uh, a, sure. a, a legendary piece of Hollywood the, the lore. I hope that the, dong the is in the Oscar Museum. Yeah. The, the the essential. All right, so there 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 you go. Uh, the, that's your news for today. I'll, I'll I'm just gonna do penis related news next time. I think that's it. I think that worked great. Forget streaming. I think this should just be. What's up with dicks this week? Like, are we going like kind of the celebrity skin route, Lon? <laughs> no, it's just it's just news your penis can use. Oh, okay. So just like, <laughs> well, maybe we'll have a Moistening creams. Yeah, urology-related updates. What's new in the condom industry, you know. I love it. There's got to be. Uh, we're making oh, a joke. There's at least one penis podcast, right? Like, for sure. If there isn't. But you know what? This is what this is what we can have behind the paywall on. The, the peen cast? Yeah, the peen cast. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, your your Patreon dollars go to the peen cast. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, coming up, uh, we uh, talked about several things, and we're going to have a special guest. I'm just going to lay it out. uh, So we're going to talk about uh, White Lotus. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about the Kate Blanchett starring Tar. And then we're going to talk about the uh, new documentary Love Charlie. And we will talk to Love Charlie's director, Rebecca Halpern. All right, Lon, we were just talking about a White Lotus related story uh, we before the break. And uh, let's talk about White Lotus. This is season two of White Lotus on- Season two. From Mike White. Uh, he's got his name in the title there, White Lotus. And uh, this is uh, this can be found as the first season on HBO, HBO Max. Yeah, we're, we were in Maui for the first time. Now we're in Sicily. We're on the island yes. of Sicily. Yes, and, and the resort is the White Lotus. We're gonna, right. going to different shoot locations them four around seasons, the world. But they, the fictional resort chain that the uh, the show takes place in is the White Lotus. Indeed. So I'm enjoying it. I'm going to finish it off. I'm, I, I like the actors. It's, it's, it's still fun. I, I don't think this season is as good as, as the first season. I'll I'll just come out and say it. And I think that the first season, it felt more like it was really about stuff. And this season feels like it is a bunch of funny, quirky characters playing out sort of relationship dramas. It doesn't feel as pointed to me as the first season did. It feels like it's kind yeah. of missing that relevance that the first season I had. can see that. I feel like it, it seems like, oh, it's a series of, like, you know, the characters are thought out and plotted, obviously, but... It seems like when we stumble upon a big moment, um, it's a little bit like, oh, okay, that resonated, where there there were more moments that resonated, I think, in the first season. Yeah, but it's also just the first season was really about, it was about, you know, like this, the, it was a satire. It, it, right, it was about privilege and, and class and... Yes, and speaking of that, because... Uh, to a degree, you have the upstairs-downstairs dynamic that you had in Downton Abbey between the people that worked at the hotel and then the guests at the hotel. I feel like the the hotel side of it this season is not as strong. I feel like you miss someone. Like Murray Bartlett, he was a comedic force. Murray Bartlett had so many goddamn great moments throughout that season. Right. And I feel like it's a little lukewarm, the stuff with the hotel employees, and it lacks for that. And that's kind of what I'm saying. It's like, well, that was so important in season one because that was kind of yes. what it was about. It was about the, the clash between these very privileged, wealthy guests and these hardworking sort of everyman hotel yeah. employees. And this season, we're not doing that. And I'm not saying he has to do every season about that, but it doesn't, to me, feel like he replaced that with anything else. It's just kind of, now it's a show about relationships and sex and love and couples. And yeah. the first season was already about that. And I think we're just, now we're leaning very heavily into that, but without any of the other commentary. And it just feels a little thin. I don't know. I hear you. And it does rot, like the material rises sometimes. There are a couple of really nice moments where the story, okay, um, it's it arrived somewhere. Like, one of the storylines, without giving too much away, it's about repeating the sins of the father, generational behaviors that get picked up. And th- that is that story is headed in an interesting direction. Kind of, but it is also repetitive. It is. Like, I, I feel like th- th- there's a little bit of a repetitiveness because the first season had that. There were there were other dynamics aside from couples and people in love or people flirting with each other to, to play around with and tease with. And this time, the one like 
the one very interesting alternate dynamic I feel like we have this season is uh, Jennifer Coolidge and I'm um, oh I'm blanking on the actor's name the 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 British the British man that she's befriended Tom. Yes. What is that guy's name? Tom yeah. Hollander. Tom Hollander. Yes. So I, I, I like, they're not in love. You know, they're like these weird vacation friends. And he's obviously kind of like some sort of, he's, he's running some kind of con or game on her or something. And that, yeah. that's juicy. Like, that's something to play with that's not just, will they, won't they? Or is he cheating on me? Or I like her, but she yes. likes him. Or are they going to sleep together? You know, like, and I mm-hmm. feel like. I feel like it's it. Mike White in his sleep could write, "Will they? Won't they?" This guy wants to have sex with her, but yeah. she wants to have sex with him. Stories. But he is. Uh, he's the like, master. You know, of just that. Uh, like, you know, he's gay, and he's there like a, they're they're they have a platonic relationship, right? And the, I'm just saying, like, it's a different shading. It's something else that, that it's yeah. another dynamic to play around with. And I, I feel like we're we're just we're spending a, we're spending a lot of time either with couples or with people who messed up yeah. their love lives and are now full of regret and remorse about it. And and it's nice to have one other sort of dynamic, whereas I think in season one, we had a lot more diversity of dynamics that we were looking at. It was about groups of friends, and it was about lovers, and it was about people flirting, yeah. and it was about this lady who's having a life crisis and befriending the woman at the resort, and it's about the hotel manager being stressed out and whatever. And like, I don't know, there is mm-hmm. a little bit, it feels a little more samey this time, where every episode we're kind of going through yeah, a similar Yeah, a little stuff. more plotting, like pacing-wise as well. And then one other thing that I'm is a little hit or miss to me in in this season are the sexual politics it, the it feels like women are being objectified just a little bit more here and obviously there's you know uh, there are sex workers are some of the central characters well, I think only one, technically only one of them is a sex worker I saw another one. review that was referring to them both as sex workers like the other one is just her friend who's sort of around <laughs> yeah but she gets she's into trying. Yeah, she's down. She's dipping a toe in. Fr- it's, she's still a uh, sex amateur. I think. I wouldn't say it, like it, it smacks as super misogynistic to me, but I'm like, oh, they're uh, so. the th- women are really objectified and transactional but in a couple. Of- I mean, I don't. I I would say my one counter to that would be, and I'm blanking on that character's name as well. It's Mia, and who's the sure. other woman? Mia's one of the escorts. Yeah. No. I anyway, it, uh, Lydia or Lily. Like she's yeah. like. Like in control. I don't feel like it's her being objective. She's the one who's going around and like picking the next man and seducing them. And like, I feel like she has a lot of agency. It's not really offensive. I just, it, it, at this point, it feels kind of samey. I'm waiting for her to like, what's her, what's her plan? You know, like, like we've been, it's been long enough of her trying to hit on every man in this hotel and see who she can get sort of in her web. What's like, we, it's time to, time to get to the next phase, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. my that's my thought. Overall, I'm enjoying it. I know it sounds like I'm bitching a lot. I'm enjoying it too. I, I feel like uh, there are enough good moments, and the acting is uh, strong enough. You know, when you got F. Murray Abraham, Jennifer Coolidge, Michael Imperioli, there's like an, enough of Plaza. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna cast. say uh, that is one thing I'm very much here for is the uh, the F. Murray Abrahamazons. We got him in. Uh, we got yes. him in. Uh, what a mythic quest. And then uh, he was it. He just popped uh-huh. up in uh, that that Moon Knight show. He was the voice of whatever the. Co- yeah, I'm blank. I'm doing bad with my. I'm starting to sound like my dad here with all that, like bah, uh, that uh, the Egyptian god <laughs> Corfu, whatever his name is. Anyway, he was in Moon Knight, and now yes. he's in this. A lot, a lot of F Murray, 
Abraham these days, and it's always delightful to see him. Oh, yeah, any F. Murray Abraham is good F. Murray Abraham. Uh, yeah, worth watching. I do miss Murray Bartlett, and I, I feel like Jennifer Coolidge does not have, has not been given an, the bombastic moments that she had last season as well. It's tough, you know, because uh, last season, in the first season, like when she's on the boat throwing her mother's ashes into the ocean, it is just like... Uh, uh, masterful. There you go. Uh, fucking funny as hell. Uh, White Lotus, season two, available for you on HBO, HBO Max. We also watched Video On Demand. You can rent this film now, and it uh, before it comes to streaming down the road, I think Lon told me earlier that it might end up on Peacock eventually. Right now, it's only Video On Demand. Focus and- features owned, owned by Comcast, so might will likely end up on Comcast streaming service, uh, Peacock. The Kate Blanchett starring... Tar, tar. Uh, I watched it VOD. It's also in some theaters right now. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed this. I don't think it's a perfect film, but I think Kate Blanchett uh, really uh, gave a hell of a performance. Here. Well, I think it is a perfect film. No, I'm kidding. I don't want to start film. Uh, okay. I thought it was great. I loved it. Uh, definitely one of my favorite movies of the year. De- look for it on the top ten later. I feel like it's it's. Uh, it's one of those movies that reminded... Did you ever see Margaret, that Kenneth Lonergan movie? You should see it if you haven't. Mm, I'm not sure. Uh, if you have not seen Margaret, so. everybody listening to this who can hear my voice, if you have not seen the movie Margaret, you should absolutely watch it. It is from 2011. Kenneth Lonergan, who did You Can Count On Me uh, with Laura Linney and Mark yes. Ruffalo. Oh, yeah, I love uh, You Can it Count was On a, Me. It was a, a, a film that he made with Anna Paquin, and it... It has a it has a plot. There is a story. Anna Paquin is a uh, New York teenager, and it's a coming of age story about a bunch of different things that happened to her. But in another way, mm-hmm. it is really kind of it's about everything. It's kind of like let's do a character study of this one person, and we get to know her so specifically, and we drill down into her psychology, into every aspect of what's going on mm-hmm. in her life, and we follow her during this difficult period in her life, and and. It sort of speaks to everything about what it is to be modern and alive in the world today, even as it's sort of attacking it through this one character. And I kind of feel like that's in some ways, like I've, I've read all, all sorts of pieces about what Tar is about in terms of like, it's about cancel culture or wokeness or it's this, you know, it's about her and, and her relationships or it's about, it is a, it's, you know, a psychological thriller or whatever. I, it, it really, it's just... It's just like Kate Blanchett getting you into this person's head. And by the end of the movie, you really feel like you you know her and you understand her world in a way that most movies can't even begin to approach. And it does this thing where you then start mm-hmm. thinking back over everything that happens in the movie and like trying to piece it together. Like, why did she do that then? And then react this way and everything becomes a clue. And it's like, it, it kind of wakes you up to like movies can function on this level where it's not just a story, but it's whole a whole little world that you get to observe for two or three hours. Yeah. Oh, it is a world and it does world building. It takes you inside this uh, this realm of classical conductors of music, of um, of scoring uh, pieces uh, of, of conducting and uh, music composition. And you feel like you've learned a little bit more about that world oh, in addition a lot. to, <laughs> like, yeah, like, I agree with what you're I saying. I feel like yeah. I learned a lot about what conductors do, yeah. Because I go in kind of cold and yeah, Kate Blanchett, just um, FYI, sh- 
she uh, plays one of the world's foremost concert conductors and music composers. Um, she's done, uh, she just has an illustrious storied career. Her character in the film, this fictional character, uh, where she's an EGOT winner. She is one of the great musical uh, creators of our time. In this film, I would say she's like John Legend, or John Legend meets John Williams. John Williams was the, what I want to say first, but like the EGOT, uh, yeah, one of the. Great I, yeah, I don't, I don't know enough about like compose, uh, like conductors, I guess, to like know yeah. who she's being. Like, I'm sure she's inspired by real, like a real person or real people, but I couldn't tell you possibly. And then, like Leonard Bernstein, this is like, I don't know that many famous conductors, right? Who's the Dudamel? Is the, the L.A. Sure. full guy Dudamel? Yeah, she, she's a master tactician. You really do feel like it's an immersive performance. And her the energy she brings to the role makes almost every scene riveting. Yeah, there's. I read a, I read a tweet that, that was saying um, the movie just gives Kate Blanchett a lot of opportunities to, like, do stuff. Like, she just, there are a lot of scenes where it's just like, it's going to be interesting to see how this character navigates this scenario. And it and, and and it doesn't need to be in the movie for any other reason. Like, there's a subplot that's just one sequence where uh, Lydia Tarr has a has a daughter with... Uh, she's, she's in a relationship and they have a daughter together. And her daughter is being bullied at school. They live in... She's a Berlin conductor, so mm -hmm. they live in Germany. Uh, so... Kate Blanchett drops the drops the daughter off at school and then finds the girl who's been bullying her and in German delivers this whole scene in German, uh, identifies herself as the girl's father. Like that's that's what you the first thing you notice is like I'm her father, mm -hmm. and then gets in this little girl's face and just and just threatens her and it's it's Kate Blanchett not pulling a punch because it's a child. It's Kate Blanchett delivering a scary monologue about what I'm going to do to you verbally excoriating and, and this like young girl. I feel like on some level audiences just want to watch Kate Blanchett do scenes like that for two and a half hours like if you could write a movie that gives Kate yes. Blanchett 10 scenes like that to do you deserve an Oscar that's what movies are about in some ways absolutely and um I would say it's on par with uh one of her great performances which I loved Blue Jasmine sure. she played a character that went through such a goddamn um change and ex and had so many flavors to it uh you get to see this character like tragedy or or um like major there are major occurrences that befall this character life-changing uh stuff that this character goes through similar not uh, not completely unsimilar to Blue Jasmine as well. The stuff about cancel culture, I, I think it, did you feel like they were trying to be, they were a little too ambiguous with what they were trying to say about it? It's like, oh, cancel culture can go too far no. or it can bite you if you're not careful. I don't think that's really, I don't think this movie's about cancel culture. I think it's about mm -hmm. Lydia Tarr. And I think that it's about, first yes. of all, if you're taught if through the modern lens, if you're if you're going to say that this movie is about cancel culture, she definitely deserves to be canceled. She sexually groomed a young yeah. woman and then turned on her and betrayed yes. her, leading that young woman to commit suicide. So right, I feel like that story with like there's a motif where you see the back of the head. It seems of the person 
uh, that uh, one person that she uh, absolutely psychologically and. And I mean, I'm, I'm also I just mentioned the scene where she threatens a small girl and tells her she's going to like do violence to her if she continues. She's not a good person. Like I feel like this movie is about right. peeling back all of these layers of not just us discovering who Lydia Tarr is, but it's about her discovering who Lydia Tarr is. There's a scene, there's one scene, I, I, I feel like I've spoiled too much already. In fact, we should probably go back and have Travis cut that part where I explain the sort of plot of the movie. We'll talk about that after. But uh, so I don't think there's you gave a scene late much. in the film I don't think you gave where she goes to get a massage and the women, her potential masseuses are lined up and she said, pick a number to pick which masseuse you'd like. And for a, for a split second, it... it it sort of resembles like a brothel, like what you would do if you were picking out a prostitute where the women are lined yeah. up and it's like, which one do you like? And we recognize that in the audience. Like we have that moment of, oh, she picks number yes. five, whatever. But she has that moment. Like, oh, she's looking, because it's even, she can see her own reflection in the mirror. It's like, I'm a predator. Mm -hmm. This is what I do. I look at these lineups and I pick the target that I want and then I take them. And it's yeah. that to me. It's much more about that than it is about what society, like a a, a commentary about when society cancels someone. It's about what. It, well, how does it feel to one be canceled, but two to have that moment right. of self realization of these people are angry at me, but I have I have violated. I have done something bad. Like I'm seeing myself reflected in their in their anger. To me, that's what it's about. No, that that is. I, I like what you're saying there, and that's uh, you know a, a wonderful specificity about uh, seeing her reflection. Yeah, and you do get to see how she operates with uh, with no remorse or uh, right. or any consideration of what the fallout would be. It's the impunity that leads to people to be canceled. She's drunk on power. It's, it's a cautionary tale about power. Uh, there's so much, yeah, there, there's so much that this character embodies. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, a fantastic performance, uh, a well-crafted film. Uh, yeah. Do, do you think the the film deserves to be nominated for Best Picture in addition to, yes. to Kate Blanchett? I, I mean, I think throw, throw nominations at it. I think it's brilliant, but I think that the one that it's yeah. guaranteed, essentially, I, I, to me, she feels like a lock for this one. Like, who who in the best actress so category? I, so I mean, I haven't seen the women. The woman king. I mean, I look forward to seeing the new Olivia Coleman. Yeah, film I don't. That was not uh, getting. That was not getting great reviews. People love that women king with ah. Viola Davis, and you never want to count out Viola oh, yes, Davis. Yes, I, I still need to see. Absolutely. But I don't. I don't know if there's. Yeah, I don't know if there's anyone else who could who's who's primed to take out Kate this year. She does good acting. She does good acting in this movie. Even Kiki Palmer, Universal is trying to put her for supporting actress for Nope because get out of Kate's way. Like Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, that makes total yeah. sense. Tar is available video on demand. Uh see this movie. It's really good. Finally, Lon and I both watched a movie that is also new to VOD on Apple, Amazon. You can rent it there. Love I watched Charlie. it on Amazon. There you go. Uh, Love Thank Charlie, you. The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter. And here is a uh, a, a quick uh, admission. Um, I, I really like the film, but I, I might be a little partial here because it was directed by my wife, Rebecca Halpern. Right. And, and normally I don't think that would be an issue, but you're a wife guy. So if you I'm weren't a wife, a wife guy. guy, I'd be like, I'll be like, how we'll give this a fair review. But as a wife guy, we got to note that maybe you'd be a little biased. This is true. This is true. And I promise are... to say exactly what I think, even though Rebecca is going to be here. Like, I don't I'll 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 offend her. I don't care. I'm going to give you my honest take. 
there you go, like a rude customer <laughs> in a restaurant no or, need. A, no or need a maniacal a, chef, a maniacal yeah. chef in a kitchen. Lon is don't, going to pull don't put no a disclaimer punches. on me. I always give you folks the unfiltered truth. Oh yeah, the straight like you know that should that should be <laughs> behind the paywall. The straight poop. There you go with Lon Harris. There you go. Hello. Hi, Rebecca. Oh, hello, Lon. Hey, everybody. Nice to meet uh, your acquaintance. Yeah, well, oh, I think we, yeah. we've spoken only only briefly in passing. We're like like a hello. I think we've done we've done those, but never a full conversation. Exactly. Amazing. Um, all right, so we just set up. I always that we tell watch. all my friends. I tell all my male friends, like, I don't want to meet your wife. Like, listen, we've, we've, <laughs> uh, um, I don't need to meet your wife. Listen, well, no, uh, what, sorry. what a horrible thing to say. I don't do that. Yeah. Um, okay, so we just uh, mentioned that we both watched it, and uh, we're going to bring you in, and we're just going to uh, talk about the film. Okay, great. Let me put my earbuds in here. Hold on one second, please. Great. Because I'm. I'm Laundry as is, I'm doing a load of laundry as is want to happen on a Sunday sure. evening. So I hope you yeah. guys can't hear hear the cycle. Anyway, no. here we go. I don't think I can hear the laundry, but that's all right. It would just be an added. It, it's it's uh it's verite. It's real texture of your life. Yes. Yeah. Okay. This is we're we're behind the scenes now. So without further ado, let's bring in the director of Love Charlie: The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter. Uh, a fantastic uh, writer, filmmaker, producer in her own way, in her own right, and uh, my wonderful wife, Rebecca Halpern. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Hal. <laughs> thanks for. Thanks for uh, I, I feel like maybe I should have done the intro. We'll, we'll, oh, we'll long. talk about take this. two. Take the next two. time we bring one of our wives onto the show, I think maybe the other, the other, the non-married one does the intro. Yeah, because I could have, I should have kept going on and on. There's so many things I can laud for about. But exactly. uh, congratulations, like, you know. <laughs> um, congratulations on the film. Uh, Not to me, to you, Rebecca. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you made a film. Did... I didn't make a film. No need to congratulate me. Rebecca, yeah. Congratulations Lon, to you, you, Lon, for dealing with Hal. Thank you. I have a podcast. Yeah. I have my very own podcast with Hal. Congratulations uh, to you for putting up with Hal. Mm, uh, yes. Congratulations is, you know to what? both of you for that putting up with me. But um, in addition, congrats on directing a movie. Uh, how did you come to direct uh, Love, Charlie? How did this story uh, uh, cross your path? So the producer of Love, Charlie is a woman who... Her name is Renee Frigo, and she founded an olive oil company called Lucini Olive Oil. And in the 90s, Charlie Trotter discovered the olive oil, brought it on Oprah, uh, and the rest it was history for Renee and Lucini insofar as the success that just came pouring in. And um, when he died, she felt a, an obligation to honor his legacy. And so she made a short film. She had Common do uh, a song for the short. And when she was talking to Commons people about making it a feature, she had asked them about who, who they thought should direct. And I had just partnered with Common on a series about the Chicago mayoral race, uh, and they recommended me. I grew up in Chicago. I went to his high school. My mom was a food critic there. Uh, so I just felt like his story was in my bones. Very cool. So um, Charlie Trotter is a, ce a celebrity chef that not everyone has 
heard of prior to this film. Uh, Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about just who he was, like some of the most engaging stuff about, yeah, Charlie Trotter? Well, first and foremost, Charlie Trotter is the chef that puts Chicago on the map for food. And I think we can all agree that, you know, one of Chicago's biggest calling cards is food. A lot of people travel there to eat in various kinds of restaurants. I mean, that's what it's known for. Um, Also, he was the godfather of food porn. I mean, our Instagram feeds would not look like they do today with the style of photography that we're all seeing everywhere these days, but for Charlie Trotter. He wrote 14 cookbooks, and his style of photography really revolutionized the way um, food is photographed. It's it's like it was the precursor to Chef's Table. Really up close, intimate, beautiful colors, very stark backgrounds, really letting the food sort of speak to the reader in a way that was very seductive. And um, in fact, it ended up seducing a, a chef in Chicago named Grant Ackett to want to come and work for him. Uh, Grant Ackett is the owner of Alinea, which is a three Michelin star restaurant in Chicago that's mm. been around for 17 years. Yeah. So I was going to say in the in the late 90s, uh, my roommate in college decided he wanted to be a chef and he sort of self trained just by just through cookbooks and at that time now there's a million celebrity chefs there's like you everybody has their own book like how to cook my way but in that era there were like two people there were like you could do the julia child book i think mark Bittman had like one book and then charlie trotter and like those were that was how you learned how to cook the basic stuff so like i remember as soon as you showed it in the film they've got those like with the, the tea and the flowers on the front, that, that logo. Matt had all those books, like the How to Cook Vegetables, Charlie Trotter book. It really took me back to that era. This is like 20, 25 years ago now already. Yeah, I mean, uh, before Charlie Trotter, cookbooks were instruction manuals. After Charlie Trotter, they were coffee table books, works, you know, right. pieces of art. And um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's funny. I had just produced a series about Charles Manson and the 1960s for the Ethics Network. And, um, you know, interviewing some of the people that worked for Charlie, it was as as if I was interviewing, uh, you know, one of the Manson family members, the way they spoke about him and this kind of cult-like sway that he held over everyone in his kitchen was really remarkable. other innovations, he was using quinoa and vegetar- you know, vegetables in a way that no one had ever used them before. He put a table smack in the middle of his kitchen where you know diners could make a reservation and come and eat right in the midst of the kitchen, which is ubiquitous today in fine dining, but no one had done it back then. Um, and, you know, that, those just barely scratched the surface of some of the things that he's done. Microgreens, you know, the baby lettuces, he invented those. Yeah, that was yeah. That, that's in the film. And I thought that was like a fascinating part where it's like how how he came up with this, like, oh, I want a certain kind. Like he he was decided based on the you don't usually think of food that way. Like, I, here's a thing I'd like that would complement this dish that I need that doesn't exist in nature. Is that usually you think of like, well, here are the four ingredients I have. What am I going to make? And to have that approach where you're like thinking about a dish based on all its constituent parts and like, you know, what would be ideal is this kind of a vegetable. And I need to have these three things. It's just such an interesting way to think about food and kind of let you into how analytical his mind was in some ways. 
Oh, totally. Yeah. It's very much like he was like a composer, right? And if there was no instrument that existed that made the sound that he was looking for, he would go and figure out a thing that made that sound, you know? Right, um, yeah. So he was a savant in many respects like that. Yeah, I yeah. also thought an interesting thing about the movie is one of, one of these ideas that, like, we don't, and it's not just, I mean, it, it's talking about it in the culinary sort of world, but I don't think it's limited to that. Like how we don't kind of appreciate people until like they're gone or it, it, it's too late. There's a lot in the movie about like how, you know, there were these moments where Chicago could have kind of came together to celebrate him or to note the legacy. But it's only like now that we're removed from it that we look back and like we see what kind of an impact he had. And like, oh, we, he wasn't like he was kind of being, a you know, sort of. I don't know, not not treated maybe as as well as he deserved to be. And as I think Anthony Bourdain even says something like that, like treated shabbily in his own time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you, you sort of reflect on how often that happens to so many different people. Yeah, give someone their flowers while they're alive. Well, I, but I also think, too, like nothing Charlie did was so beyond reproach that he didn't deserve a little empathy. He didn't deserve, a, you know, that, right. that, that he didn't deserve a little slack. He did. And I think, you know, it's very much that sort of like, you never know what you had until it's gone kind of a thing. And I think, um, you know, I do think he was deserving of empathy. I do think that the journey he went on was noble in terms of what he was trying to accomplish at that restaurant. And I do think his talent was remarkable and unique and outstanding. And, and people like that should be remembered. Yeah. I, I'll say one of the things watching the film and like, you know, seeing your process, I've seen the film many times, but like one of the things I've learned, uh, uh, I learned so much about the world of fine dining from the film, but it's not just about cooking. It's a character study. And there's a lot of darkness in Charlie's life, especially later on. How did you, and I, I feel like it's a really balanced movie like showing like his ascent and his skills and, and then uh, how he came apart at the seams. Like how, what's the thought process behind, okay, how much of this do I put in versus how much of his, his ascent and how much of his downfall do I show? Uh, so the film was financed by his best customer, a guy who mm -hmm. ate at the restaurant 424 times. Oh, he's when, in the film, right? He's, yes, he's Ray one of your subjects. Yes, yes, yes. And when he decided to fund the majority of the film, um, he wanted it to be kind of this survey of all of these amazing chefs and all the customers and everyone. And it was a kind like a memorial video that you would play at somebody's funeral or something, right? And when I started, you know, really learning more about who Charlie Trotter was and seeing this kind of Shakespearean arc of his narrative. I just thought that we would be remiss not to lean into the cautionary tale of what happened to him, which is that his identity became consumed by his work. And he played the role of Chef Charlie Trotter for 25 years. And when you play a role that long and then the curtain comes down and there's no second act, you know, where are you? You're lost. Your raison d'etre, your reason for living is gone. And he died a year later. Um, so that was a compelling story. I didn't need to interview everybody and their brother. I couldn't afford it and I for the budget. And then I also started production, physical production on day one of the COVID lockdown. 
Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of um, there were a lot of variables that were m- and moving parts that we really had to sort of come to grips with, and um, we decided to really just cut to the heart of of his story, stick to the people that knew him the best, both on the positive and and negative sides, and try to create what would become the most definitive, balanced uh, legacy piece that um, preserves his sp- space in the pantheon of great culinarians. And I think um, the movie did that. I was a journalist by training. Um, I will say that um, had COVID not happened, it would have been very interesting to go and shoot more verite and see where that would have led us. Um, but I do think that my journalism has like came in handy when it came to being very judicious and uh, about about where you know not not showing my opinions on things as much as it was about staying true to Charlie's story, which right. But the, you also there there are great interviews throughout the movie though. There's a lot of good footage with you know Wolfgang Puck, Emeril Lagasse. Are there any other like famous like super chefs? Like who would have was there any like dream get as far as chefs? Because like you have a, a real who's who in there that are like oh I wish I could have gotten this person. Well, you know, I mean, we we reached out to everyone, but because of COVID, you know, at that time, restaurateurs yeah. were fighting to stay alive. So they didn't really mm-hmm. care about interviewing. Oh, <laughs> right. Right. So like, a little distracted. Yeah. yeah. The world yeah. was angry. Well, I do think one element that's really interesting, too, and I remember, like, I didn't. At the at the time I saw my best friend's wedding, I would not have known who Charlie Trotter was. So to me, yeah. that was just guy playing mean chef. But uh, I certainly I certainly remembered that sequence, seeing it in in your film, and it really made me think too. Like we've we've now come the the like fired up, passionate will yell at you, but only because he's so committed to the food. Chef is like such a pop cultural. Thing now, we just had the bear earlier this year. Joel Mm -hmm. McHale was basically playing a Charlie Trotter type in that. And I mean, Gordon Ramsay has made like a whole career out of screaming at people in kitchens at this point. And he really was kind of the godfather in some ways of that trope as well. Like, like the, the like drill sergeant chef who's going to scream at you to get back to your station or whatever. Yeah, and the I kitchen mean, as a pressure cooker uh, as well, like with right, the, yeah. the movie Chef. That's become such our cultural and, idea of what it is yeah. to work at a restaurant as opposed to like, I feel like when I was a kid, you didn't necessarily think of a kitchen as being like being a Marine. It was just like, that's where they stir the pots and cook the Oh, meat, and we know? just had mentioned the menu as well. So this archetype yeah. is, was oh, Char- is Charlie the godfather yeah. of this? Is like, how much does Charlie, like his uh, sphere of... Uh, uh, influence touch that archetype. I mean, I think now he'll certainly be the best known to tyrant of all chefs, right? right? Um, but I can tell you, you know, it's funny when we were working on the film and we decided not to shoot any verite because there was no way for me to be on set in all these different locations and have the same DP in all these different locations because of COVID. Um, I wanted to maintain consistency, so we decided to lean into the archival instead. And we killed ourselves trying to find any sorts of tyrannical moments from Charlie that revealed (laughs) who he was and how he was. Because um, we couldn't really shoot any original that much original photography that could give the audience a sense of that tyrannical nature, all of that. So. 
when we found that Peaches footage uh, in the film, one of Charlie's protégés talks about how Charlie Trotter reamed him Mm -hmm. out in the kitchen for cooking peaches the wrong way. And we found this footage of peaches that were decomposing on a countertop. And it fits so perfectly over that, over that. Oh, you found that? You didn't shoot that, the peaches rotting? No. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, that, that would have taken time. a really long time. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I assumed you time lapse and rotting peaches. Yeah, it was in um, our living room. <laughs> yeah, we set it up at home. Um, yeah. No, but, uh, you know, we were lucky to find that. I remember the day that I came up with that idea, just, you know, because at first we were thinking, should we use the same postcard motif that we had in the film? But um, anyway, so but I think we were effective and at least kind of giving the audience a hint of how tough he was to work for. So, um, yeah. Uh, Wow. And he's such a singular character. It's uh, yeah, I I enjoyed learning. I feel like I know him, even though I've never met him or eaten at his restaurant. Had you ever eaten at his restaurant? No, I ate at his to go place for Thanksgiving one year. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the only Thanksgiving dinner I ever cooked for my parent, my dad, believe it or not. But I didn't even cook. I just heated it up in the oven and that was it. Um, but no, my yeah, mom I've eaten knew a lot him. of his I've eaten a lot of his recipes because, like I said, my roommate would make like Charlie Trotter vegetable dishes all the time. But oh, I never cool. had I never had one cooked by him. Said. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. In the film, we sort of create these two characters. One is Chuck, which is what all of his friends called him before he opened the restaurant. And then the latter character or his professional persona, Chef Charlie Trotter. And I really do believe that if Chef Charlie Trotter had remembered who he was before being corrupted by the fame, by the fortune, by the success, by all of that, before he drank his own Kool-Aid in a way, um, I wonder if he'd still be alive. I wonder what he would be doing today, you know? Um, He really, it's interesting watching him because he held himself to such a high standard. Like, I didn't realize this was even possible. He was changing his menu every night. And after doing that for 20 plus years, like, that is, you have set yourself, that's quite a pace to have to live up to for decades and decades. Um, he was like the first real life, he was like the real life chop. His chefs would walk in there every day and not know yeah. what they were getting in their mystery basket. Wow. And they had to make, <laughs> you know, two 10 course tasting menus out of that. So yeah, it really, it really was like that Hell's Kitchen challenge where you just go in and it's like, here's the menu and you've had no time. And it's just like timed everything and has to be exactly right. Perfect. Every time. Yeah, uh, exactly. Rebecca, if you want to go ahead and tell folks where they can, again, where they can find the film or anything else uh, you'd like them, any calls to action regarding Love Charlie, the rise and fall of Chef Charlie Trotter. Well, first and foremost, Hal, I hope you'll you'll lead a, um, a, a sing-along to Love Charlie because you know every word in the movie. Oh, so I do like it quoting it to Rebecca. Like uh, there are weird things that I'll just I'll randomly say to her, like because the, there's a newscaster who's mm-hmm. uh, doing a report after Charlie get, uh, gets caught uh, going off at some kids and uh, uh, an after-school program, and he says. Top Chef tirade Chicago style. So I just like <laughs> randomly quoting the movie, like weird elements from the movie to yeah. Rebecca. 
Or like, or like if, if he bumps into me in the kitchen, Hal will turn to me and he'll say, you've got to have an awareness, you know, which is something. Charlie <laughs> yes. That's say. from the movie as well. <laughs> um, you can get the movie for rent or purchase on Apple or Amazon. We are number two on the iTunes documentary charts. And we were holding wow. steady in the top 10 of iTunes indie charts for the last two weeks. I think we just fell out of the top 10. We're like at 12 or 13 now. Um, the film has been doing very well. Only David Bowie's Moon Age Dream is above us on the doc charts. And I think while Charlie would be okay with being beat by, by David Bowie, I am not. So <laughs> please, um, you guys, uh, purchase renting. Yeah, You'll be 85% on the, 85% on the tomato meter. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how the audience is relating to this. And it's funny, you know, Lon, I'll just give you a little behind the scenes my producers didn't like the Chuck portion of the film. They thought it wasn't controversial enough, that there wasn't enough there there. And that to me is everything. That was Cameron Crowe and John Hughes and like Chris right, Columbus. Yeah. I mean, it was like all wrapped up in that. And if you didn't get the Chuck, you wouldn't understand what happened to right, Chuck Charlie. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You need you need the background to understand the change that like and and why all the people who knew him were so perplexed by sort of what had happened to him because it, it was so different. I, yeah, yeah, I think they're I think they're wrong. Well, I also I like too. that stuff because I remember the ground round from when I was a kid. So yes. seeing that commercial for the ground <laughs> round took me back. Really took me back. Yeah, it's funny to hear audiences in the movie theaters when that commercial comes on. It's a moment for them mm -hmm. where they really perk. If up, you're the like, right oh age. God. Oh the yeah. Round round was like the place you wanted to go. Like, you know, when your family would take go, you know, once a once every few weeks or month you'd go to out to a restaurant. That's oh, a good time family go. meeting place. Uh yeah, exactly. I want to thank my wife, Rebecca Halpern, who's downstairs in the other room, but uh right here, number one uh in my heart. Thank you for coming on and uh congrats on directing uh an awesome flick. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you guys. I really thank you. The movie. You, Lon, that's high praise coming from yeah, you. Right? I've heard some of your critiques before, and I got to say, you know, it may be friends and family here, but it means a lot to no, me to hear you this say is, nice. I, I promise there's no disclaimer. This is unfiltered. I said beforehand, if I hated the movie, I'd be like, Rebecca, it was <laughs> terrible. But I didn't. I didn't. So thankfully, we don't have to have that awkward uh, encounter. That that's another podcast for another time. Uh, what <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, would, if you make another movie and it's terrible, we can definitely have that. <laughs> listen, I like to say, you know, it's funny. People are like, can you watch it again and again? And I'm like, no, because I cannot anymore because I just see too many things that I want to change. And like, you look at Francis Ford sure, Coppola yeah. messing with every one of his movies until... Oh, yeah, you know. for the re-release? Yeah. 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 Well, it's like, even if you write something, like the moment you hit send on the email, that's when you notice the four mistakes that you made in the email that you didn't get. Oh, that yeah. happens to everybody. But it's maybe you can... Was, uh, I look forward to the Kubrick director's cut of Love, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, the Kubrick famously was never finished. In fact, The Shining had an extra scene when they sent it to theaters, and then he recalled the film and sent new prints out with a scene removed because he decided wow. he didn't like it at the last second. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I have a couple scenes I'd like removed. Or <laughs> well, to. just write to 
write to Apple and Amazon and tell them their new versions. Listen, if you guys help keep us in the top 10 and the dark doc charts, maybe there is a future for me anyway. Well, I I look forward to all of the Blu-ray releases of future editions to come. Uh, But Rebecca, congrats. Uh, Really, really proud of the work you've done. And uh, yeah, um, you know, as much as I've seen it, I enjoy, I enjoy the heck out of the movie. Uh, Yeah. Good stuff. I spent more time with, Charlie Trotter during the pandemic than I did my own husband. I got to say, Hal, you were my best collaborator all the way through. Thank you so much. Very sweet. Very sweet. Oh, and by the way, last thing, uh, you had a bit of a cooking renaissance inspired by the film, a bit of a Julie and Julia moment, and I reaped the benefits. I got to be your official taster. So thank you for that. My pleasure. And I'm happy to give any tips on what not to do uh, to anyone who's interested. So uh, thanks. Lon for having me on. Lovely to meet you again. And we'll talk soon, guys. Thanks. Rebecca Halpern. Thank you very much. Uh, That's our show, Lon. How about it? it? Those those are the things we've watched, and that's the one director we're going to talk to today. Ever. Uh, Ever. Um, I want to thank uh, Starburns Audio for having us. Hoot Hoot, Owl Nation. Uh, Travis Reeves, thank you for producing us. Jason Kay, thank you for the music at the top. Lon Harris, care to tell them anything else? Uh, Just find me on Twitter as long as there's still a Twitter, I guess, at L-O-N-S. That's where I'll keep you updated about uh, what I'm doing and which people are Nazis that you should unfollow. Uh, and everything else and you can sign up for my newsletter where i talk about big streaming stories every day five days a week totally free check that out anytime inside.com slash streaming very nice and yeah you can find me on the dystopian hellscape of twitter or on instagram at hal rudnick or follow me on twitch.tv slash hal rudnick where i do a weekday live stream uh your pal hal show check that out twitch.tv slash hal rudnick otherwise Really appreciate you listening. Thanks again to my wife, Rebecca Halpern. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye now. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys.